Did you know that in the March quarter, 12.3% of properties sold in Australia did so at a loss? This adds up to almost a billion dollars. That's actually $908 million in losses. And this is only the tip of the iceberg. Affordability in the capital cities has just become too unsustainable for a lot of people, especially now that we're seeing the the largest generation in Australia, the millennial generation, they're moving through that typical first home buyer age. And so potentially you've got a real demographic demand surge that is supporting um, more demand in those um, spillover growth markets. Uh, and and more profitability for the people who've been holding there for a long time and, and starting to sell up as well. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as down Download our free full or forecast report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Eliza Owen has recently taken over the mantle of one of my favourite property reports, CoreLogic's Quarterly Pain and Gain Report. Eliza has joined us today to discuss the key findings in the most recent release, which looks at the March 2020 quarter. Are loss-making sales rising or falling? Has COVID-19 made an impact? Where, what and who is likely to experience the greatest gain or pain? We've got questions about both city and regional locations, houses and units, investors versus owner-occupiers. Thank you, Eliza, for coming along today to talk about all of these elephants. Thanks for having me. Hi, Eliza. Thank you for coming on again. Um, The COVID situation really only started to kick off in, you know, the Feb, March, the end of the quarter, but we already did see quite an uplift in the loss-making sales. Can you kind of explain a little bit about what was the cause behind this? Yeah, so I COVID's been really interesting because a lot of the focus on data has gone from looking at things on a monthly basis or a quarterly basis and saying, what's the day-by-day situation. So I literally plotted out the loss making sales by contract date in the March quarter. Um, ever since the onset of coronavirus, it's, it's had that kind of really high frequency focus. So if we take the hundredth case of coronavirus being the weekending the 14th of March, um, that's when the ABS kind of set that yep. yardstick for a lot of their data. Um, yep. Only about 14% of loss-making sales in the quarter were after that date. And and yep. and from that date, the portion of loss-making sales was about 11% compared to 12.3% in the rest of the quarter. So I think the reason we're seeing that was because the initial fallout from the pandemic was not an increase in loss-making sales. It was an enormous temporary drop in sales activity. We saw that in listings data as well. By mid-April, new listings had fallen by about 48% because why why would you sell in the middle of a pandemic, right? Um, And and so April also saw really low sales volumes. Um, And so I think what really was behind that is the fact that through this pandemic, uh, a lot of homeowners have been helped by banks offering a pause on mortgage repayments. Um, And 
also low cost debt was able to continue funding new and, and profitable sales where, where properties were selling. Uh, and the demand was also helped by a record low cash rate setting. So I think the institutional response had really uh, kept some stability in the property market and maybe even yeah. improved some of it from that loss making sales perspective. That's so fascinating. I love the fact that you sort of drew a line in the sand at March 14, which is pretty much where we've drawn a line in the sand too and we've been reviewing, um, you know, doing our pricing research on properties, et cetera. Um, but by putting a lid on listings and therefore transactions, would you say that COVID potentially had a positive effect on the property market? So I guess it depends uh, what what you see as a positive effect yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> from from the pain and gain data. I think low listings levels definitely help to stabilize the property market. Yeah. Um, in many ways as well, with the social distancing restrictions, you couldn't physically transact property. Agents couldn't hold open inspections and get yeah. as many people through. On-site auctions were, were postponed. Um, so I don't know. It's almost much like it's a less extreme version of a suspended stock market trading period or something. Um, but I think overall, uh, COVID has not really had a positive effect on demand for property. And, and ultimately, yeah. we can already see prices falling. And that's really because the, the nature of this downturn has had a massive impact on the labor market. Um, we've seen that uh, uh, wages have fallen significantly. Yeah. Um, and property values are, are falling uh, as a result. We know that um, uh, for for every 1% increase in the unemployment rate historically, there's been an associated uh, 80 basis point lift in the arrears rate as well. So while I think the initial institutional response has helped to keep things steady, we yeah. are going to continue to see prices falling and we probably will see a bit of an uptick in, uh, in arrears as well. It's interesting you say that because you're right, that if you talk about actual demand, um, a lot of that comes down to how many people are working and how much money are they earning, um, and then how and that then the overall sentiment, etc., will determine how many people are out there actually looking for property. And without doubt, like you know, there's a huge increase in unemployment. There's huge reductions in uh, contracting and bonuses. So, you know, there is a demand problem, but that is potentially offset, like you said, where there's been a fifty percent decline in April, but. I know that looking at your data that listings did start coming back in, in May, didn't they? They did, yeah. So we've seen a, a significant rise in listings over um, May and June. And I think vendors became a bit more confident in testing the market. Uh, mm. But that also coincided with a really strong bounce back in consumer confidence, mm. um, getting ahead of the virus curve and some of the restrictions started to uh, be lifted as well. Obviously, that's changed now with things uh, in Melbourne and, and yeah. Melbourne going back into a six-week lockdown. But it was incredible to see how transaction activity sort of bounced back in the second yeah. quarter. So, uh, obviously, your June 2020 pain and gain report will show the evidence of all of this. But so let's just go back to your most recent report because there's some really interesting stuff in there on a regional basis in particular. And it's quite interesting that uh, while we could see the the loss-making sales percentage had actually gone up over the December quarter, correct? Sydney and Hobart 
buck the national trend. Why do you think this has been the case? Well, for the past couple of years, I think um, the portion of loss-making sales in Hobart, whether that portion is rising or, or falling, Hobart is just one of those cities that could go in either direction because the the volume of sales that are, that are loss-making is so small. Um, the the change is probably more to do with with randomness. Um, right. So, <laughs> so I mean, at the end, disregard it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, profitability was always going to be very high in the Hobart market because of it's had such a song, strong growth period. Annualized capital growth in that dwelling market has been seven point seven percent a year for the past five years. Yeah. Um, in the December quarter, there were fourteen loss making sales. In March, there were sixteen loss making mm. sales. So, uh, yeah. you know, I I don't think the changes in that rate are too much to be read into at the moment, but I think that might be tested once we see more sales volumes coming up against um, conditions around COVID-19. Obviously, Hobart has a high exposure to workforce segments that have had some of the biggest job losses over the COVID period. So namely food and accommodation services and arts and recreation. That's already having a massive impact on the rental market and that will translate to property values. So I think for Hobart, we could start to see a few more loss-making sales over the coming quarter. Um, oh, yeah, sorry. Oh, yeah, I was so interesting that because the whole thing about affordability is that when you have more expensive property, obviously people, say, in hospitality, typically earning less incomes, lower incomes, sort of priced out of the property market, right? But when you're in, in lower priced areas, then people working in hospitality, and I'm only using that as an example, which typically earn less money, might have a better chance of actually buying property. So is that fair to say that sometimes there are different areas that might be more impacted as a consequence mm. of these job losses because of the demographic and the, the basically the consistency of yeah people who actually own homes? Yeah, so I think what we're seeing at the moment, and this is backed up by Ahuri data as well, is that um, people working in food and accommodation and arts and recreation are most likely or they're more likely to be renting than in any other um, workforce segment. Right. So in terms of the impact of COVID, there have been about 20% declines in payroll jobs across that hospitality and tourism kind of work segment. And when we talk about affordability, house prices are a component, but incomes are the other massive component. Mm. So even though house prices are falling, if incomes in that segment are falling more, I'd yeah. say we'd probably see a lot of people really struggle to um, live comfortably and 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 be able to enter um, that ownership status out of the COVID pandemic. I think the people who really benefit are those who have been able to keep their jobs and keep a relatively steady yeah. income as prices have fallen. Yeah. I think the interesting thing a lot with your report is it's always very clear that the units have a much greater portion of loss-making sales and apartments and townhouses, which they're all in one group from my understanding. Um, compared to say houses and detached houses, houses. Why do you think that's the case? Um, I think for units, they are potentially uh, more likely to be held by uh, an investor 
And mm. another trend that we see across these reports is that um, investors tend to have a higher portion of loss-making sales uh, versus owner-occupiers. So the incidence of loss-making sales among investors in the March quarter was about 17% compared to 10% in owner-occupiers. Yeah. Um, and I think that comes back to um, investors uh, not having the actual utility of owning a home. So yes. an owner-occupier might be likely to, to hold a property for longer because they're using it to live in. Um, another factor of units, and, and it depends where you are, of course, across Australia, because unit markets can be incredibly different. But yeah. a lot of what we've seen over the past few years, uh, alongside that large investor participation in the market that we saw from about 2013 to 2017, was an uplift in unit construction. We saw this really yeah. unique phenomenon of unit approvals outpacing uh, house approvals at one point. And yeah. if we look at the stock under construction across um, Victoria and New South Wales, even during this um, COVID downturn, the amount of unit under constructions um, it, it looked to be about 20% above the 10-year average for New mm. South Wales and Victoria. So that high level of stock, and I think to an extent a high level of investor participation, which incentivized yep. a lot of that stock, has sort of meant that units generally haven't performed as well in terms of price, and that's yep. led to sort of a decline in profitability as well. And some of the unit performance has been very stagnant, um, depending on the region as well. Uh, yeah. So uh, for inner city Melbourne units, for example, they really haven't shown the same kind of capital growth performance as we've seen in detached housing stock in, in some of the suburbs that are further from the city centre. It's pretty heartbreaking, really. The thing is, and that I just know what you said there, Eliza, about the uplift in unit construction is continuing, even though there's been well-publicised a slowdown in uh, approvals. Mm -hmm. but. Currently, what's being built in Sydney and Melbourne, if, you, if I'm repeating you correctly, is 20% above the 10-year average. Even yeah. in the face of the fact that we've had these loss, these losses, you said the inner city uh, Melbourne market has been well publicised, has been stagnant for the last decade. Um, in fact, there's been well publicised data on losses on resales of those properties. But that's not sort of separated out in the pain and gain report, is it, from existing? So you haven't got sort of first-time resales separated out yeah. from existing stock or established stock, have you? Uh, no. So at, at the moment I'd say it's still a case of inference where we see that a relatively high portion of loss-making sales, for example, are taking place in um, inner regions of Melbourne, uh, and we can sort of attribute that to high levels of recent construction and, and completion of units. Um, so at this stage, there's no real big data approach to understanding the age or, or quality of the property that's transacting in this particular analysis. Um, we do have an extensive construction database behind our Cordell data platform. Oh, and yeah. it's a matter of exploring ways that we can link a construction project to an address because while it's um, in construction or in planning, it's not technically an address just yet. So that's part of where the big data challenge comes from. Um, but we do know that 
uh, especially amid the coronavirus crisis where inner city rents on apartments have been really affected, um, that there's an increased pressure on um, people to sell. Uh, across Melbourne, we know through metadata from our valuation platforms that the difference between uh, a contract price for an off-the-plan property and its valuation at settlement is seeing more and more divergence as well. So the portion of properties that were coming in at a lower value than the contract price across Melbourne um, was about 50% at, at yeah. March this year, and about 22% of those had a materially lower valuation uh, of more than 10% than the, uh, than the contract price. So I think even from that valuation story, we can see that um, – the conditions are kind of worsening, particularly amid COVID. A bit, it's a bit conflicted, isn't it? Because um, you guys are a data house and yet this putting all this together is expensive, right? Data is expensive and the analysis is very expensive. And who wants to pay for that pretty bad news story when the economy really relies upon good news stories around construction it's a bit, uh, it's hard isn't it well, well for for core logic i think it's a bit different because yeah. we our our major clients are, are the banking sector and mm. they need to know they want to know yeah. what what the risk is in certain markets um so we don't really have an interest in just telling a, a good story um yeah. but it would be great to see how we could match that, you know, year of build or, or quality of the property to the actual record, I think mm. it would definitely enhance this report. And Veronica, yeah. I think you've got to come on and do a business case with me. <laughs> Let's see if we can get it happening. I mean, it, I just get so excited about the idea of, of more transparency around this because it's it's a it's a true it's a true story that needs to be told, but it's a very complex and difficult story to tell because it's a moving target, isn't it? You know, once it's sold the first time, then it becomes established. And, um, you know, the, at the moment all units are getting lumped into the same murky bucket. <laughs> I mean, well, I, one of yeah. Problems, oh, isn't it? I mean, units, you've got townhouses, um, villa units, mm. um, older style units, you've got um, Art Deco apartments, um, you know, premium apartments, et cetera, and, Units is such a big, broad area. Um, have, is that one of the areas that potentially you're considering, you know, breaking up more older established stock um, townhouses and villa units into different buckets? Like, is Yeah, it's, it's so diversified. And I think in the past we sort of just rely on the idea that the stock might be relatively uniform in sub-markets. Mm. So the kind of stock that you envision when you think of inner city Melbourne might be different when you think about um, suburbs yeah, in inner east or, or something like that. Um, yep. But there's, yeah, definitely uh, a lot of exciting work to be done in the data. Well, it's funny, it's, say, Sorry, it's, it's funny you should say that actually because I literally just finished off some um, research for a client. We put together a property portfolio of them some for them some years ago and we do a sort of review every few years and there's two townhouses in their portfolio in inner in, in Sydney and trying to get the relativity around working out how they performed versus the median. And, and I know it's imperfect and I don't like medians myself, but you've got to sort of find something to to benchmark it against and yeah you can't pull out that data because they aren't units and they aren't houses um so you sort of got to come up with some strange amalgam uh that you use every time a bit of fun but 
you know, and adding um, on the sort of stamp duty costs and the selling costs, Eliza, have you had any, like, you know, in the background, any sort of adding those in and seeing just how much these numbers kind of proliferate? Because I imagine, you know, just taking an extra 6%, you know, 2%, 4% for the stamp duty and 2% for the selling costs would make these numbers much larger. Yeah, it is something that um, I believe Veronica and I chatted last time about this report, and it certainly did see um, uh, upward um, uh, sort of saw more loss-making sales when you do start to factor in those costs. Mm. Um, the pain and gain analysis is basically just looking at the difference in the sale prices uh, the um, uh, between the, the two sort of contract dates. Which is amazing, isn't it? Because you think, I mean, even in the boom, it was over 9% uh, every quarter, you know, that that more than 9% of property in Australia sold at a loss, even in the boom. Because, of course, we all know that, well, we all need reminding sometimes that Perth and Darwin haven't been in a boom while Sydney and Melbourne were in a boom and, and even parts of Brisbane were, were suffering um, while other parts were doing okay. So while the two strongest markets were booming, Upwards of 9% was selling at a loss. Then you factor in the stamp duty. So even if it's 9% selling at a loss and or say, let's say 10%, let's round it off, and then you you just put in a blanket amount for stamp duty and selling costs, what would that 10% translate to if you just looked at those two costs, Eliza? Um, I think it was um, a, an uplift from about 9% of loss-making sales to something like 13% percent when we looked at it uh, last time. So uh, basically we could factor that into, because we're able to determine the value difference between the two sales, if we just, um, you know, put in some kind of cost around um, transactions and and holding and things like that, then we could probably do a a bit more deep work on on that um, analysis. So it almost adds another fifty percent, doesn't it? And and that's and there's all these other costs. I mean, basically, if someone renovated the property, that's not included. Uh, there's the actual holding costs aren't included. So um, you know, there's this is a very and then there's all the properties that actually are haven't been sold that would sell for less if they hit the market. So the true story is is quite different. But let's go back to um, units for a bit because we noted that forty two point two percent of Gold Coast units sold at a loss and the highest volume of loss-making unit sales was across rest of Queensland region. And so Queensland's a big state, but what does the rest of Queensland region cover? Yeah, so just to clarify, it was actually in the region of the Gold Coast. It was Mm -hmm. about um, 12% of um, properties across the Gold Coast that had uh, made a loss. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, the unit component was looking at the portion of loss-making unit sales across Queensland that were on the Gold Coast. And Uh the reason that number sounds so high is because it's really a reflection of sales volumes. So about 50% of all unit resales measured in the March quarter um, took place on the Gold Coast. And so wow. that's why we get that high representation. Now, in terms of the <laughs> rest of Queensland, um, that basically refers to anything that isn't Brisbane. Um, and it may seem like a weird way to categorize a region. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a naming convention that comes from the ABS 
Australian Statistical Geography Standard. Every state at that, what they call the um, greater capital city versus rest of state region is, is broken up in that way. And so the cool thing about CoreLogic data is because we do analysis at the property level, we can basically aggregate our boundaries of analysis to align with any of those ABS um, geographical regions. So the capital city versus rest of state is um, just sort of one geographical lens that we use to look at this data. Right. So that's enormous. <laughs> so and is, yes. <laughs> thank, thank you also for the very gentle way that you actually pointed out that I got my stats wrong. Oh, so, no, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. And, and I point this out because I'm pretty numerate, but I realise where I've made the mistake. So it's not saying that 42.2% of Gold Coast units sold at a loss. It's saying that Gold Coast units represented 42% of the loss making units. sales across yeah. the regional yeah rest of Queensland that's yeah right. and, and again thank you. no no not at all <laughs> um it just comes back to the sheer volume of, mm. of sales in units that happen across yeah. the Gold Coast so um yeah I think there were about three thousand three thousand resale records that we collected for the Gold Coast in that March quarter whereas I guess other areas um Townsville for example or um you know central Queen Queensland just wouldn't have as many unit sales happening it's a good point though around Gold Coast because it is such a uh, a market that is dominated by units and um you know tourism and Airbnb etc and I imagine the unit market in Gold Coast right now is actually having a really quite tough time, right? So, um, you know, that, that I imagine that also is going to increase in the mm. sort of next quarter. Yeah, I mean, since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, um, between the start of the pandemic and June, we noted about a 10% uplift in rental listings across the Gold Coast region. And again, it does come back to that um, fall in demand that comes from exposure to accommodation and food and arts and recreation services where people have been losing their jobs and potentially having to move out of their rentals because they might not be able to service their rents. Um, and the additional supply because of new construction um, and also a loss in demand. I think the big one is coming from the closure of international borders where you'd have holiday makers coming to the Gold Coast. And we know that international migrants as well, uh, about 80% of them rent when they first come to Australia. Yeah. So a lot of those things have really impacted the rental market and, and that's had a big impact on the Gold Coast. And do you expect any in the next quarter? Because you know, you've probably already seen a little bit of the data come through because it's July already. Um, you know, what are some of these areas where you think that there's going to be a massive uplift, or do you think because of the low transaction numbers, because of COVID, there's not going to be any great difference? Well, what was interesting is that um, we saw this drop in, in sales volumes of about a third over April, but then over May and June, they bounced back. And I think mm. even as vendors tested the market and felt a bit more confident, we did see um, larger rates of discounting and that's reflected in price falls that we've seen across a lot of regions as, as well. Yeah. At the moment, um, the June quarter didn't really show a decline in values across the Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast. They were still up by about 1% compared to a mild decline across the Brisbane market 
regional areas have held up slightly better so far. Uh, and I think that's sort of because they tend to lag um, the capital city performance. Um, there is also this question of, you know, domestic tourism flourishing, um, people being able to work remotely that may be adding some level of demand to regional and particularly lifestyle markets as well. It's an interesting point there because most of the coastal regions of Australia saw a relatively low level in loss-making sales uh, in the most in your report. And I guess given that recent rise in sea and tree changes, could we expect these areas to perform even better? Yeah, so, I mean, the high profitability across regional centres in, um, in terms of the pain and gain analysis, uh, it's been a fairly consistent trend, um, COVID or, or no COVID. Um, mm. For the past 20 years on average, the, the portion of loss-making sales across Sydney has been higher than in Illawarra, um, and, and Newcastle and Sydney have tracked fairly closely. Geelong has consistently been more profitable than the Melbourne market. Um, and it's slightly different dynamics where in Geelong, for example, loss-making sales only comprised 1.6% of sales in the March quarter. 80% of those were owner-occupied properties compared with um, about 66% of sales across Melbourne being owner-occupied. So there's a different dynamic where you've mm. got owner-occupied properties in regional areas that are being held for longer. Yeah. Um, I think in recent years, the normalisation of Airbnb has increased profitability in coastal markets um, where there's a smaller portion of stock available for the long-term rental market, which may have supported growth. Um, and as I said, there's also this aspect of cyclical patterns where at the moment um, we're still seeing mild growth in regional Australia over the um, June quarter compared to a 1% decline across the, the um, capital city markets. So I think there's a few different things going on there, but theoretically, I think that the normalisation of remote work, it's not something that's going to hurt regional Australia. And Chris, I know you've done a lot of research around this recently as well in terms of the working from home phenomenon and, and all of that sort of thing. Um, one thing I would say is that I, I think that the nature of the economic shock that we're going through is so large that there will be a period of subdued demand, at least in the short term for regional areas. But, but yes, I think, I think that regional Australia in the longer term will be helped by this period where people have been forced to kind of experience working from home. Uh, and for a lot of people, that might be more appealing than the previous um, living close to work and commuting every day. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. So you mentioned um, earlier that the proportion of loss-making sales by investors is obviously a lot higher than that of owner-occupiers, and there's a lot of reasons around that. But I guess then you could argue that 
when you start seeing a lot of investment activity in an area, that's a bit of a warning sign for what's about to come maybe in the next five to 10 years. Would that be a fair bow to draw? I think that um, the presence of investors in a market might create a little more um, risk um, potentially. And, And we've certainly seen that where there were kind of boom and bust conditions around WA markets, uh, around the mining boom. Um, I think we saw it where there have been high levels of investment that have spurred a lot of construction in inner city, Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. Of course, these risks are exacerbated by large economic shocks, um, particularly one in a hundred year pandemics. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, under normal circumstances, the, the risk associated may not be as high, um, but it, it also does depend on the market and how much concentration there is in the market, yeah. uh, how much construction results from it. I mean, you look at Hobart and uh, there'd be an uptick in investment activity over the past few years, but it's mm. still a relatively tightly yeah. held market the level yep. of construction hasn't met the level of uh, demand. And so yep. that's an area where um, it, there's been quite consistent high rates of capital growth as well. Yeah, it's so interesting around the, the pandemic potentially lifting the veil on apartments mm-hmm. even further. But it's kind of they already had so many shocks. They had all the building issues, you know, last year, um, the huge decline in investors leaving the market, all the potential changes to negative gearing. Um, you know, just being on the news of, you know, the problems around apartments and even documents like this, just kind of showing it. And then you've got the pandemic, which completely dries up the demand, you know, no, no sort of the Airbnb problem with tourism, etc. So, you know, a lot of it, people who have had these apartments thought, oh, it's going to, supply is going to dry up because the building's, you know, going to stop building at some point. Um and there's going to be all these first home buyers that are going to buy these apartments off me. But unfortunately, uh, they're still building, but the demand's just completely fallen off a cliff. And on, on the other sort of end of that, where there was a lot of building and a lot of demand and then it fell off a cliff was the mining sector. So, And over the March 2020 right. quarter, each major mining region across Australia saw an increase in the portion of loss-making sales with at least 35% of properties selling at a loss. So, and one shocking figure was 53.8% of investors in regional WA selling at a loss. So clearly part of the post-mining Very boom good. fallout. But are investors finally giving up on a recovery? Yeah, I think that investors have gradually been withdrawing from various parts of the WA market for a long time. Yeah. Um, it's and and in a way that's sort of been reflected in a tightening of rental markets as well. Uh, interestingly, at the start of 2020, we did start to see this period where values across Perth, for example, hadn't fallen uh, for about four months. consistently Um, rental growth was quite strong and rental markets were tightening and I think we were finally coming back into that upswing of course the uh, upswing has been somewhat interrupted by the onset of COVID-19 so I think that with WA we could start to see an improvement in the market just cyclically but it it would take place, I think, really when things get back to normal and, and it's really about getting ahead of the virus curve, allowing business to operate again. Um, and and it's 
it's only those conditions, I think, that are really going to facilitate a proper rebound across Western Australia. Poor it's funny old. you say about actually giving up, Veronica, because I've had quite a few clients over the years that have had properties in Perth, Darwin, um, mining towns, etc. Um, and at some point, you know, it does, even on this week where you've just, sometimes you've just got to take the loss um, because what it's doing is stopping you doing other things, whether it's upgrading your house, which is this client this week, for example, um, or potentially not buying another property because it's using your servicing. Um, and at some point, you know, just taking a small loss because there's no real end in sight um, is what, what the best thing to do is. So I do agree with you. I think a lot of them are, you know, been holding it for five, six, seven years, um, still don't see any recovery. So why not just take the loss and, and let's give up? And this is interesting um, part of the report as well because it does talk about the hold periods and and stands to reason longer somebody holds a property, uh, the less likely they're going to make a loss. However, you know when you look at places like units in Darwin, um, I think sixty eight point six percent of units sold for less than the previous sale price, and it's like, and that there's a chart in the report showing that the proportional loss making sales in both cities, uh, Darwin and Perth steadily climbing over the past five years and so you could uh, in those areas the longer you hold it the worse off you are um but the fact is you know real estate is a long game and so there's a there's a conflict in terms of the message there people have to sort of get off that horrible roundabout and and realize that it's not going to work for them um but certainly the the report does point to that doesn't it eliza that really the longer you hold it the less likely you're going to sell to loss, but it doesn't always happen. Yeah, I think generally uh, longer hold periods are typically associated with um, higher sorts of gains. Um, In the last couple of reports, I uh, started doing some analysis on the median um, profit buy hold period. So uh, in this report, we we did that same analysis and over the March quarter found that, uh, you know, people holding around um, four to six years, the the profit, um, medium profit nationally was about $100,000, which, you know, is still quite good and and speaks to um, the strong broad-based uplift that we started to see um, halfway through Uh, last year as well. Uh, But, you know, compared to holding for, say, over 30 years where the median profit is um, about $600,000 across Australia, um, it's certainly a matter of uh, time in the market. Mm. There are regions of Australia where, you know, because of an extraordinary um, structural change to the market, whether it's a mining boom, whether it's, you know, extreme weather conditions in North Queensland or or something like that, that those um, more broad um, ideas don't really hold. Yes. (laughs) Um, Tell us about Canberra because Canberra is sort of a little island in the storm at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, the ACT market has performed relatively well, I would say. Um, It it certainly saw an upswing um, over the past few years and and was enjoying some of the growth that came from a successive cut in interest rates and um, changes to negative gearing and and all of that sort of thing. Or sorry, rather, no changes to negative gearing and capital (laughs) gains concessions and the confidence that came with that. 
uh, around the election result last year. So the Canberra market has performed quite well. Importantly, it's also had less exposure to some of the more vulnerable workforce segments that we've seen throughout COVID-19. So um, less exposure to the um, arts and accommodation services and, and food and recreation services as well. I guess the big thing to note with Canberra is that the house segment of the market has tended yep. to show stronger growth rates and higher levels of profit profitability than the unit segment because again units are a, a place where we've seen um, higher levels of construction in fact in 2019 the ACT market saw uh, record levels of yeah. a new unit supply um, and so that's created a, a bit more of a divergence in the profitability between house sales and, and unit resales. Yeah, there's a lot of apartments getting built in in Canberra I was there mm -hmm. last year and I kind of flabbergasted of how many were going up um, all around the city and you're right you've got this, the, the two different worlds there you've got anyone who's buying those apartments and or even bought apartments there five ten years ago were getting impacted with all this new stock hitting the market and then you've got only a limited amount of houses and in that kind of inner sort of area but then there's lots of house and land packages getting built as well so if you you know on the fringes because it's just so much land so you just got to be very careful when you break down a city because like you're saying you've got to then split it to units apartments new houses etc to, to really see where's doing well and where's not it's actually quite fascinating and, and that correlation of new construction and loss making sales is i think that's the first time i sort of heard it expressed the way you've expressed it there lies i mean we've sort of known it intrinsically but this is the first time i guess you've got that alignment in terms of um where the data is pointing um, it's just alarming. I, you know, I'm doing a lot of work with first home buyers at the moment and, and I am alarmed at some of the, the beliefs around property. And there's still a lot of, a yep. lot that believe you can't lose money. And there's, there's all these yep. incentives that have been put together, you know, to in, and, and particularly t targeted towards first home buyers who are our most vulnerable buyers really. And, um, yet, as I said before, I feel conflicted because I want a good economy as much as the next person, but it is the riskiest segment of the market. Now, Eliza, in capital cities, uh, what are the hallmarks of council regions that experience the least loss-making sales? I think um, historically the areas that have seen um, higher levels of profitability have tended to be um, higher socioeconomic areas. So, um, for example, in the March quarter, we saw North Sydney, 98% of resales had made a profit. Uh, across the Northern Beaches, about 96% of sales had made a profit. Um, and I think that speaks to uh, the fact that you have a lot of owner occupiers in those markets. Um, yeah. They're these sort of blue chip areas that have enjoyed long-term growth, given all the amenity and, and proximity to um, major work centres and all of that kind of thing. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's uh, reflected in areas of, of Melbourne and Adelaide Hills and other capital cities yep. as well. Um, I think what is interesting is that more recently it, it there have been these kind of spillover areas of growth. So we talked about, um, you know, Geelong, for example, uh, the Blue Mountains, um, obviously on the kind of periphery of the Sydney metropolitan, 
but had a really high level of profit-making sales in the March quarter at about 97%. And I think that comes back to the kind of recent um, growth that these areas have enjoyed as affordability in the capital cities has just become too unsustainable for a lot of people, especially now that we're seeing the, the largest generation in Australia, the millennial generation, they're moving through that typical first home buyer age. And so potentially you've got a real demographic demand surge that is supporting um, more demand in those um, spillover growth markets mm. uh, and, and more profitability for the people who have been holding there for a long time and, and starting to sell up as well. It sounds, and maybe I'm jumping to conclusions here, but it does sound a little bit like the demographics in these areas is more skewed towards families and typically families tend to stay longer in the home um, and typically owner-occupied. Um, and so once again, the sort of the little dials are pointing and the directions of those um, factors that point towards you know, higher level of profit-making sales. Would that be fair to, to say? Yeah, yeah, I think that's um, probably a factor as well. Anywhere that, you know, it, um, I guess comes back to that basic principle, particularly when it comes to the capital city markets um, of having a longer hold period and that generally being correlated with a higher level of profitability. But as we've discussed, there are certainly exceptions to that as well. We, we also have to um, draw the distinction between um, profitability in, in the context of this report versus actual profitability um, because, you know, just because it made a, yeah, made the, you know, the it gave a positive return in terms of nominal sale or price doesn't necessarily mean that it actually made a, a good profit or was a good investment. Um, but certainly it's a, it's a good litmus test. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to also see if there's a, uh, a way of potentially having a small margin after costs um, on the profit making mm. as well, because just because of like anchoring biases that we have, um, let's say you bought an apartment for say 300,000, um, you don't want to sell that if you have to tell yourself that you've made a loss. So, um, you know, if you have to sell it for under 300, you just won't take that offer, right? But if you get an offer of say three hundred three thousand, you're more likely to take it just because <laughs> you paid three hundred. Um, and so I, I just think it'd be amazing just to throw that into it as well. If you just put a little bit above, yeah, absolutely, the, uh, the amount, how much, how many properties actually sold just for a dollar or a thousand dollars more <laughs> than you actually purchased it for? Because you know we're so uh, skewed to to selling something just so we can tell people that we haven't made a loss. Um, and tell ourselves. Yeah, fascinating. Oh. All, all great topics for the next report. <laughs> <laughs> this is all the psychology of it, the loss aversion and uh, the disposition effect and all that sort of stuff, which I find so amazing. And I, and quite often I'll have a conversation with somebody about their, their you know, proper example and they'll tell me all these sort of figures. And it's amazing how often those figures are actually incorrect because I've got access to RP data, I can go and check. And, um, you know, <laughs> people actually have forgotten or they get it wrong. And this happens enough for it to be a statistically significant, in my view. <laughs> oh, we see that too, actually. Sometimes, uh, you know, what did you buy it for? Oh, 760. And then you have a look and it was, you know, 790. Or, <laughs> um, and, and you think, well, you know, the brain's kind of 
automatically we do that we always try to think that we're making more money than we are and i think property is one of those things where you know if you really want to know what's you know if it's how much money you're making etc you've really got to really know the numbers right and you really got to track it and then also add in opportunity costs what would you have done with you know that negative gearing cost would you have paid off the mortgage yes okay so you need to add in a a cost of capital there as well and um, not many people do that because then you actually go actually i haven't actually made much money out of this even if i don't sell it for 20 or 30 percent more than what i paid for and um, that then makes it really uh yeah it's quite confronting for a lot of investors because they're already pretty you know frustrated with the returns they're not getting it's a horrible horrible feeling now eliza what do you expect to see in the june quarter data um I would expect that for the June quarter, as I mentioned earlier, we're probably going to see more sales given the strong rebound in sales volumes over May and June. So the results uh, for the June quarter could see an increase in the portion of loss-making sales. Um, and, you know, I think I think um, we are sort of seeing the... Uh, extension of um, assistance for people who have lost income, uh, lost hours. Uh, we can see the institutions and, and major banks are already working with yep. them to try and help them service their mortgage and, and potentially avoid um, defaulting or, or um, having to make a loss-making sale. So it, it is hard to say, um, given that that institutional intervention is probably going to you know, help help stabilize, um, but I think overall that we we can't completely avoid the um, impact that this downturn is having on demand. I think there will be an uptick in in loss making sales. I think a lot of it is is probably going to um, be emanating more from those inner city uh, apartment markets that we talked about that have high risk. Yeah. Um, so. And, and, you know, now that I'll be factoring in uh, all these different costs and <laughs> stamp duty and all sorts of things, um, uh, it, it'll be interesting to get a view on, um, on what that does for the metrics as well. It's a yeah. really good point around the intervention because, um, you know, if you said to someone in February that uh, we'd have a pandemic, well, maybe February would have been, some people would have believed you, but you know, would you think that the banks would come in and offer six months sort of payment holidays? Um, well, no, I just didn't think it was possible that the banks could do that um, or mm. would be willing to do that. Well, um, I guess the other thing is about 60% of bank lending is in residential mortgages. So yeah. they don't have an interest in seeing the property market <laughs> exactly. decline significantly either um, but because so much of their, their holdings are there as well. Um, yeah. And, I and that's the thing, you're yeah. right, because it's like they're so inherently need to make sure that if they don't allow people to start selling their properties because then you start to create falls in prices, which then increases their defaults, which increases their bad loans, which increases their cost of capital. And it, mm -hmm. it really is this kind of um, cascading effect, which, you know, all the banks are in on it, the government's in on it. And so they're all going to do whatever they can to, stop people forcing people to sell and that's why the payment holidays got extended for another four months because they were like well we yep. still don't still too much of a risk for us so let's just give them an extra four months but 
They'll still get their money though. You know, this is the thing. It's mm-hmm. capitalised. It, yes, yeah. all, all the, I mean, short term for them, they, they've experiencing cash flow losses and there's going to be implications in the business. But at the end of the day, they're still going to get their money. That's so true, Veronica. And I think that's what comes back to, you know, when we were talking about whether this pandemic has been good for the property market in terms of the institutional intervention in the short term, yes. But, but that is the thing with this debt being capitalised on a loan. It's going to reduce economic demand further down the line because Mm. ultimately people will owe more money on their house Mm. and the opportunity cost of that is that they're not spending that money in other areas of the economy Um, so it does create or it's just one aspect I guess of how the effects of COVID-19 on the economy will be really long-lasting. Yeah. And are you gonna are you gonna look to buy now, Eliza? I think when we first met, you, <laughs> uh, we ha- gave you that question. It's like you know you're, you're so knowledgeable about the property market, you haven't bought, you yeah. know. And I'm hoping you, you questioning is it too big to fail the market? Mm. Um, I mean, this is a bit of a personal question. We can chop this out <laughs> if you want to. But um, are you thinking as a first home buyer? Oh, like you know, there could be some opportunity here. It's funny, you know. I I'm someone who is quite. Um, I, I do try and look at things critically and I um, am often one to sort of uh, point out uh, some of the limitations of government yep. incentives and assistance for first home buyers. But <laughs> I know more and more people who are taking advantage of those um, of those schemes and things. Um, for me, I'm still saving, I'm happy in my share house for now, um, but I think I'm I'm just in a very fortunate position that I can just look to see where the market goes and if prices fall, then from my personal standpoint, that's going to make property more affordable for me. Yeah. It's so funny you say that you're seeing, you're seeing people around you that are, you know, looking at the incentives and all the data out there shows that the government home builder created a huge influx of demand for new house and land packages basically. Um, and as a business, we've seen a huge, for the first, uh, in January, sort of February, there was this 5% sort of deposit that the government offered for 10,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we didn't see too much, but just in this last month, we've seen so many first home buyers come to us and looking for that 5%. And basically the 10,000 places are already gone, um, you know, this yeah. month, whereas the first quarter, the first, you know, six months, they didn't really run out that fast. And, um, you know, my worry is that, you know, they a lot of people are going and taking a 95% loan um, and they're buying a house on land package so they can get the $25,000 and then they look at your data and, um, you know, they're, they're potentially, if they make a loss-making sale, they've got a, you know, 15, 20, 30% chance. Um, and so they've lost everything. They've lost their 5% because that's all they went in with. There, so. There's, yeah, a bit of risk um, around that for sure. And I think it's important for people to understand what taking out that extra debt means. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I guess one of the mitigating or, or stabilising factors is the nature of um, lending assessment and and um, the way that we've seen more stringency around um, mortgage lending in the past couple of years. So yeah. basically when APRA came in and started tightening things up and, and um, a, a lot of uh, views and, and um, investigation into the nature of lending around the Royal Commission as well, um, RBA analysis has actually shown that 
um, mortgages taken out in more recent years have been less susceptible to falling into arrears because of that more um, because of those more stringent lending conditions, basically. Which is good because then less people are going to get trapped in mortgage prison. I think as Martin North calls it. Martin North calls it. But the problem is that are they as stringent in their assessment of what the mortgage is taken out on yeah. the property? Yeah. Uh, um, and I would hazard not, mm-hmm. not if mm-hmm. they're allowed to buy a house and land package with a 5% deposit and get 25% extra which I've been hearing lots of anecdotal stories about builders um, just basically whacking that into the contract price anyway. I heard as well. And I thought yeah. that part of the policy was that they were going to be um, having builders um, justify any sort of increases as well. Yeah. So I don't know what's happened there, but that that's just, I've heard stories of that as well. And it's devastating, I'm sure, for people who are wanting to take advantage of the scheme. Well, it's awful because, I mean, it, what it does, it just says very clearly, actually, the incentives for the construction industry, it's not for first home buyers. And and that's actually what the incentive is for. It's yeah. just that it's trying to get first home buyers to act. And I just think that that's, that's pretty horrible. But anyway, there's always going to be players like that, in, you know, in any industry, really. Mm. All right. Now, have you managed to bring a Dumbo along for us, Eliza? I and forgot about Dumbo. The, I forgot about the Dumbo. <laughs> all right. Have Maybe my <laughs> no, I'm I'm sorry, I can't think of anything. That's all right, Chris. Have you got a Dumbo? Um, just trying to think of something recent where I can kind of. Okay, I've got a Dumbo actually. This came up in uh, the Facebook Live Q and A for Home Buyer Academy a couple of Wednesday nights ago. Bit of a classic one. Um, one of the people commented that they had a situation they came across where a vendor, so property, a person selling a property had to do so because they'd made a bad decision and purchased that property in their self-managed super fund. Subsequently, they got a DA approval and were thinking that they could actually uh, renovate and extend the property, but then then discovered that that's not compliant under SMSF rules. Um, potentially in trouble with the ATO, uh, absolute nightmare. They would definitely have to sell. So what do you got to say about that, Chris? <laughs> It's funny, I was actually had a recently quite a few clients ask us around SMSF rules and, you know, buying their own residential properties, um, which is interesting because uh, there's lots of rules around SMSF borrowing, um, what you can and can't do if you do buy a property. Um, and a lot of people just think it's exactly the same as if you're buying it personally and it's completely different and a lot more uh you know, like you can't renovate, you can't unless it's paid off and you have to use cash in the fund. So you just be very careful around self-managed super funds, especially around the lending side because, um, you know, a lot of the, the way that you do that is through a re, uh, limited recourse borrowing arrangement, et cetera, and the rules around that can potentially change at any point in time. And secondly, none of the banks really want to lend for SMSF loans. There's only a handful left. Mm. So you just got to be seriously careful around trying to gear up your super fund to buy property um, and not knowing what you're doing because you, you, it's very easy to become unstuck. And the penalties in super are enormous. You know, you can potentially lose half your fund, not to say that would happen, but that's potentially the penalty. Yeah, so a pretty good dumbo, that one. Well, Eliza, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot now and ask you, will you come back when the June 2020 report is released and we'll do the same thing? Sounds good. Yeah. Why are you laughing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what are they going to ask me this time? What 
but it's good. It's good. <laughs> we really value your um, thorough reading of the report. I love um, chatting to you both to get ideas of how we can improve the analysis. So hopefully next time I come back, I'll have some uh, new insights um, to add on to what we what we usually report. Wonderful. Well, we're so excited to be waiting for that one. I hate to say that I'm waiting to hear how many people lose money. I'm really not, but I do love the report. So thank you so much again for joining us, Eliza. We'll see you next time. See you then. Thank you. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... Uh, I just want to pick up on something that Eliza had mentioned almost in passing about discounting, so vendor discounting and what that means. So vendor discounting is basically a measure of the sale price of listed properties when the price has been dropped prior to selling it or just in the process of marketing the property. So the inference is that when uh, there's more discounting, I, a greater percentage from the initial asking price to the final asking price, that that uh, is a sign of a falling market. Uh, or a buyer's yep. market, and obviously the the lesser amount of discounting that points to being a seller's market, or when there's more competition amongst buyers, and it stands to reason. But there is another thing that I thought I'd just point out around discounting, because in a market where vendors don't have to sell, they won't discount if they can't get their price. So just take their property off the market, and in a market where vendors have to sell, they will discount to meet the market in order to sell. So it's just something to bear in mind as well that there can be times when prices are um, under pressure and it is still a buyer's market but there's not a lot of vendor discounting and that does come down to the fact you will have less stock on the market and that will actually sustain prices because transactions need to occur for prices to either go up or down. But it is just another aspect to consider when you're looking at vendor discounting. And how do you think actually the strategy around agents potentially pay, plays into that as well? Um, you know, are they really discounting because they need to discount or are they discounting sometimes to just to create more demand? Well, the thing there's a bit of a saying in real estate circles that that every property will sell at the right price and the art is working out what that price is. And if you nail that price early on, then buyers will recognise that that's fair market value and you might even get more than your asking price. Um, yeah. But if your vendor says, well, no, I'm not selling at that price, I'm holding out for X more than that, then you're forced to actually have to put a higher asking price on it because the vendor won't let you price it to sell. Yeah. So there's, there's quite a lot involved in pricing a property and it's, you know, these properties that sit on the market for quite some time and get a smell about them, you know, buyers start to think what's wrong with them. And quite often this, the simple fact is that they've just been overpriced in the first place. Now, this doesn't yeah, necessarily exactly. occur in auction-oriented areas, although it can when clearance rates really fall, fall a lot. Um, it's typically more something that's an issue in private treaty-dominated areas, so areas that where there's very little property goes to sale via auction. But, you know, it's not, a, it's not an exact measure because so much of it also de is determined by the confidence of vendors to get their high price in the first place. So, you know, there's all these sort of underlying um, factors that go into whether or not a property is going to be, need to be discounted before it sells. 
Join us for our next episode. We're talking with Owen Raskovich. He's the founder of Rask Australia. We're talking about shares and how they compare with property, but not the same way we've talked about before. We've got a bit of a millennial edge here, but we're also looking deeper into the DIY space, back to all the old elephant characteristics, all the old behavioural biases that we talk about. Very interesting conversation. Please join us. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. If you're a first-home buyer and you don't want to miss a step with this most important purchase, join me on Wednesday nights at 7.30pm Sydney time on the Home Buyer Academy Facebook page for live Q&A. Check out the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. Every month, my team hosts a webinar on what we are seeing at the banks, the best rates, changing policy and their service. We also share the latest insights we hear and read that are impacting the property market direction. Check out wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.